What's up, everybody? We're back with another episode of the Dragzine Podcast. I'm your host, Senior Associate Editor Brian Wagner. This week on the show, I'm joined by promoter and legendary sportsman racer Peter Biondo. Peter, what's going on? Going well. Happy Monday morning to you, Brian. Thanks for uh, giving me this opportunity. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, I always tell people that there's a, uh, and I've talked about the show, I have like a, a, a slight method to my madness, that there's certain people I have on my uh, my big board of guests. And I always I always kind of had you on my list because I'm a, I'm a, I like sportsman racing stock and super stock. And I remember growing up going to events with my dad and watching you race. I was like, all right, that's one person that I want to have on the show because I think what you do as a racer, you know, it's the company and as a promoter really kind of represents the sport well. Well, there's no doubt about it. My life has revolved around drag racing since, I mean, I was on, I was in the stands watching my father at national speedway when I was just a couple of months old. So, uh, it's my, every facet of my life has always been around drag racing. It's funny. I'm in the same venue. The, the young, the oldest pictures of me are at the track sitting in my dad's helmet, almost as an infant, you know, and you know, you grow up around the sport and you either take it as a hobby or it's an obsession. And somehow, if you're lucky enough, you find a way to turn it into to your way of life. And, I, you know, I've been very fortunate myself to be able to do that. And it's probably been a pretty fun ride for you, too, to be able to uh, to make that happen. Yeah, no doubt. You know, I my father, obviously, is where it all started. And when he when, when I got older and I had kids of my own, I asked him how he how much pressure we put on ourselves to be involved in on us to be as kids to be involved in drag racing. And he said, none at all. He just exposed us to it. He said we were overexposed to it, if anything, and he thought we would either push back and have nothing to do with it because of how much time we spent as a kid, or we would be all in. And my brother and I, my sister, even a little bit, but my brother and I have been all in ever since. You, you know, let's talk about that a little bit. You know, I, I did a little bit of research on you, and that, that's why I noticed, you know, drag racing is a family tradition. Your dad was a successful racer, you know, and that, that again, you know, it's trickled down to you and your brother. You know, how did it influence you watching your dad do so well at the track and, you know, being around it at, that, at such a young age? Well, I was lucky because I had a father who was winning very consistently and, you know, I, we pull, we lived in Queens and we still do live in Queens, but in Queens, New York, you really don't have a place to put your car. You know, there's no big spots to put your trailers. You had an, you had a, a station wagon, you had the um, open trailer with the car on, car on it. We pull in, all the kids would be playing Sunday night stickball on the street. And they'd say, uh, how did he do? And if I didn't say he won the whole thing, they would be like, ah, that, that stinks. You know, he, he spoiled us because he won like three out of four weekends. Um, but the most, my biggest take from it was, uh, how he lost when he lost, he never said a curse word, never threw his helmet. And, um, if I could take anything from him in that regard is, uh, to be a good loser, because you're going to lose a lot more than you win. I mean, you might win more rounds than you lose, but ultimately at the end of the day, you're going to lose a lot more than you win. And I think with bracket racing, that is definitely the best mantra to have. I've had Verdi on the show. We talked about that is that like, you almost have to be like a cornerback in the NFL. You got a real short memory because you're, you, you know, you're going to get burnt a lot. You're going to lose and you can't let that define how, you know, how you go about the sport. Right. It's gotta be a hard reset every round. 
if you let the previous round influence what you do in the next round, it's uh, it's a recipe for disaster. If you, because you could either get overconfident or you can get complacent and just kind of let your guard down if you're running, let's just say Joe Smith, you just came off beating Scotty Richardson. Now you have to run Joe Smith next round, you know, average Joe I'm saying, and it's so easy to let your guard down. Um, and it's also so easy to be late one round and come back and try to overcompensate and then you turn a few thou red. Is there anything that sticks out in your mind growing up about, you know, any stories in particular about your dad's racing that really kind of like that, that was that, that cementy moment where you're like, all right, you mentioned being all in that you, you thought that this is kind of the path that really interests me now. There was so many, Brian. Um, so my father, my father raised us on his own. My mother passed away when I was a few days old. So that formed, helped form a tight bond with his kids and himself. Um, so he was, we were, we did everything together. Um, uh, I would I would say what cemented it was probably the one of the most embarrassing moments on a racetrack I've ever had. But it it that's what made me realize it's either I'm gonna run away from this or I'm gonna come back with a vengeance. So it's the high school challenge. Back in the day, um, there was four hundred something cars at Maple Grove dragway it was the high school challenge all high school kids you had to write your high school on the back window um i was saint francis prep it was a catholic high school in queens i was the only one i was the outcast everybody else was from the area so the whole stand you could imagine full of high school kids and you re you realize real quick how mean people can be in high school if you do something stupid or just if you make they make fun of you so the story is, uh, it's pretty embarrassing. And I've, I've said it before, but uh, it really, it really made me appreciate uh, the sport and taught me how to lose. It taught me a lot of life lessons. So I'm in a, I'm running through the field and my father says, um, actually in time runs, my father says, he's watching the reaction times and he says, I'm 15 years old. He says, these guys are, they're all over the place. He goes, uh, you were just, um, I was like a 40 light and a 50 light and then a 20 light. And these guys were averaging like a 150, 250, 350. I mean, so he says, I don't want you to have a chance of red lighting. So I want you to, when you, I was deep staging, he says, they want you to put both light, put the deep stage light out and then just back up. So you're an inch short, basically gaining 200 to roll out. And that would make my life 50s, 60s all day. And I breezed through the whole field. It was great advice up until the semifinals. Semifinals, it's like ninth round. The stands are packed. I was really nervous. I deep stage, you know, I put it in reverse and back up my little bump and let tree comes down. I mash it on the last yellow. I forgot to put it back in drive, go backwards. Um, it was the most humiliating 16 seconds of my life <laughs> the whole uh on the return road they were all laughing at me I, my eyes were welled up with tears um that 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 was really tough but that was probably a defining moment because i got back and my father said listen you they're laughing at you it's up to you if you want to either get back in this get back on a horse or you don't want anything to do with this anymore um because he saw how distraught i was i was real hard on myself and uh from that moment on i 
I said, uh, screw this, man. I'm going after it again, and I'm coming back next year with a vengeance. And it's interesting that you have those moments like that that kind of, you know, define you as what you want to do as a racer, where you want to go with it. And obviously, you know, it's worked out. You've been wildly successful, and you racked up five NHRA World Championships with just one is impressive for anybody. You know, what was it like winning that first championship overall? And then what was the most challenging one to win? Well, I would say um, the first one's always going to be the sweetest because it's the it's the first taste of, you know, let's say you have a good dessert. It's the first time you taste a good dessert. It's always going to be like, wow. Um, that was that was the sweetest. That was 1996. Uh, and there was a lot of reasons for it. The I had a car that was okay, but we had to work pretty hard on it to get it right. Um, it was an oddball combination of Pontiac uh, motor, and it was we would run really thick oil. We were really is at the beginning of a learning curve, so to speak. We would go hot lapping it in the late rounds. The thing would pick up four or five hundreds, and I'd have to drive it. Um, we had a we traveled uh, across country, and Philip Monteith and I and um, he, he's an older gentleman, he partners with me on the, on the Superstock car. Uh, we, we just made it work. It was, it, it, that championship felt great because we went to Topeka, not Topeka, we went to, can't think of the name in Kansas. I think the track closed down now, but we made a trip across country and um, we made it happen. And I'll never forget that moment. The moment, the moment where we turned on a semifinal wind light was when I knew I had it locked in and you know, the feeling of the pressure, the first time I felt that much amount of pressure, I bracket raced before, but it's a little bit different when you put some, put bracket racing, you put everything into one day and you have a chance to execute in the final round. Here, I put everything into one year and I had a chance to either execute or drop the ball. So it felt really good to, to get it done. And to me, that's what makes sportsmen world championships so challenging that people just don't they think you just accumulate points there's a game within a game because you gotta you know what division you're in what event you go to you know and it's almost sometimes you could still be perfect and lose out because you're racing guys you might not even necessarily see at some of the same events so it's it's a whole different level of competition yeah absolutely brian there's there's a, there's a lot of strategy involved um and what event you choose. And to me, I always did really good at the beginning of the year and the end of the year. So I would jam pack my schedule at the beginning and end. And in the middle, I would kind of take a breather. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of different divisions. Everyone thinks that division is the toughest, whoever you talk to, I could tell you from firsthand, it's not easy anywhere, especially these days. But uh, the amount of sacrifice, I was talking to Luke Bagaki about this last week, because he's in a, in a, um, heat of the battle right now for another championship and he has a lot going on in his life and the amount of sacrifice you have to make to to chase it um and the effort that you want to put that you have to put in is it really takes over your life and it's very rewarding when uh when it works out justin lamb talked about it on the show where there comes a point sometimes where you're not even going to think about chasing a world championship and things start to fall into place in this case, he's like, all right, I'm just going to ride this. And then there's other times where you're set in, you're like, oh, you know, you might think I really want to do this. And it just, 
like you said, it, it takes over too much. You're like, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to chase this. Cause it's just, it's not, it's hard to do right. Isn't, is that a way to look at it? Yeah. It's uh, for a guy like Justin Lamb, a guy like Rupa Gacky, a guy like myself, we're, if we're going to go, go in on something where we go all in, not just our personalities. So it's, uh, you know, you, you, you start the year saying, I'm just going to go to one or two races, but if, but if you're a good racer, like, uh, like Luca, Justin, for instance, like I told Luca, I said, every time you do this, you're always going to be in contention because you're always, you're always going to, if you go to the first five races, you're going to end up going to two finals. I can almost guarantee it. And you're going to be in contention. So it's either, <laughs> I learned that you either just don't start at all, or once you start, get prepared because you're going to buckle up and get along and, uh, get ready for a ride. It's, you know, again, it's like watching how some of this unfolds and going to some of the, you know, I've, here in Ohio, I've got to go to some of the, the, to the regional races and some of the things that, you know, trails in Norwalk is that when you travel to these events, the other thing people don't realize is, yeah, you got the group of guys that are chasing you travel together, but then you've got these regional sharks, these local guys that are just tough as nails that you run into. And it's, it's a different level. It's, it's gotta be interesting to see that kind of challenge. Yeah. And that's what people forget. And, and uh, that kind of goes in the background is the local guys. I was talking about this a few weeks ago. I was up at New Media Dragway. It was street eliminator, sportsman, streetcars, quarter mile, the long track, semifinal round. These two local guys that I bet you have not, nobody outside of Pennsylvania has heard of. And the guy's 007 dead on with a zero and loses. This is in a streetcar, quarter mile. The other guy's 006 dead on with a zero. They get to the final, it's like 10 dead on to 15 dead on. And those are the guys that never really get to, to get their name out there. But man, you let your guard down at, at any of these local tracks. There's, I guarantee any local track you go to, there's five guys that can be a Scotty Richardson, that can be a Luke Bogacki, um, that just never had the opportunity to get out there. Yeah, and that, that, again, you add to that level when you're doing like, you know, we'll say stock or super stock, and that just adds even more variables with, you know, those people, I think sometimes that casual fan makes the mistake, oh, they're just bracket cars. No, those are highly advanced machines. It doesn't matter even if it's a carbureted 350, you, you think basic car that combo is so refined that it takes a lot to make that thing as consistent as what it is. No, no doubt. And the, the different classes, you, again, everyone thinks their division is the toughest division and that's cool. Um, everyone thinks their class is the toughest class to win, but I can tell you there is challenges. Every, I've ran every, each and every class up until uh, every sportsman class there is except for alcohol. And each has its own different element of challenge. And, you know, you look at some of the guys would, would be like, why don't you drive pro stock back in like the 2000s and say, you could crush the tree, you could do this. There's a whole nother, that's a whole nother arena. It's not as easy as it looks on paper. Um, for the guys that think stock eliminate is easy because they see guys going 40 and 50 lights and that bracket races that can go 20 on a tree at will, they don't realize it's a totally different element where you're racing 18 hours apart one round to the next where you don't have the momentum each round and the, and the muscle memory and the brain memory to continually rip the tree. So it's, it's, the grass isn't always greener. It's all different. 
I think the people who excel the most are the people who have a lot of a lot of logic, a lot of common sense, and know how to filter through the BS and what to absorb from other people. As far as as far as advice, it's interesting. Again, like I I was up at the NHRA race, you know, the big show race at Norwalk, and I was you know trying to do stories on some cool stock and super stock cars that I saw. I had to wait 25 minutes to talk to one of the guys because he just got done running and he had to go through and enter everything into his logbook and document everything down to how the car felt. You know, you go into your software, your weather station, you plug that all in there. And that's just part of the battle because again, it's, it's a car that's, it's not necessarily a bracket car per se. And that's to me, what fascinates me about guys that do so well in stock and super stock is what it takes to make those cars be repeatable and run the number. Cause I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. Especially these days you have these cars going 160 miles an hour on a nine inch tire, trying to get the power to the track at 90 degrees out. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. Um, there's, there's days where a nine sec, uh, an eight, eight second stocker is the car to have at a national event because it's less time in a racetrack, less variables, more consistent. But then you go to a hot, greasy track and, and that same guy is at a disadvantage because um, the car is having a hard time hooking up. So it's, it, but so you try to find, I mean, everyone does it for different reasons. Some guys do it for go fast, but the majority of these days, it's a lot less go fast guys and a lot less and a lot more trying to get that lolly, trying to win that round. So it's, that's what's made it ultra competitive. And it, it's, it's something that it's a different skill set that I think you can't compare to heads up racing because heads up racing, you know, like, like a pro stock or something like that, it's a sledgehammer. You're trying to get the most power down, but it's a finesse sledgehammer. Whereas, you know, class racing is more of a precise, like it's almost like a smart weapon. It's a smart bomb that you have to be so precise on both ends because you don't have the ability to do little secrets to make that horsepower to, uh, to pull up the win a lot of times, right? Yeah, I, I think Tommy Phillips said it best uh, about 10 years ago. It, it's, it's, it's like doing math. Um, high school math or college math at high at 180 miles per hour there's there's numbers going through your head there's distance going through your head comparing it to numbers comparing it to the closing rate of you and, and the guy in the other lane and and uh it's a lot it's there's a ton that goes on um i'm sure i'm sure um uh, the heads up racing comes with its own challenges don't get me wrong but I'm not sure they realize the challenges, the things that go on in your mind, just the last half a second when you're approaching the first mile an hour cone. And then you could take it a step further, you know, and let's say super stock when you got to run someone heads up and then that changes everything, doesn't it? Cause there's a lot of little things that you got to do to, to kind of uh, pull the cuffs off the car, right? Well, what are some of the things that, you know, how do you approach a heads up race in that kind of situation? Well, the way I always did it in super stock and stock was I would run the car, what I would call bracket mode. It would be a little bit heavy, keep a little extra weight in the trunk so the car would hook up, a uh, little extra oil to be safe on the motor. Um, I wouldn't chill it or do anything crazy. Something that was easy to repeat round after round, a ritual. When we go to heads up, the smaller tires come on, when the small radials come on, we chill the heck out of it. 
uh, lightweight oil, four quarts of oil instead of six. And um, you just hang on and hope it hooks up. And usually, usually I would pick up about two to two and a half tenths over our bracket mode uh, doing all of that. But man, it's, it's a lot of work. And then the challenging part is you got to get, go back and run bracket the next round and put it all back and dial up two and a half tenths. And, you know, it's, e it's easy to uh, second guess yourself when you do that. that. That's the kind of the answer I was wanting to get there because I've always like, I, I like walking through the pits and you could tell the guys that are getting ready for a, uh, for a heads up class race. Cause it's almost like you see like they're slipping on the brass knuckles and they're, they're getting ready to, they're, they're ready for a fight because you don't know how many tricks that other guys got. So you got to really be able to pull out all the stops, but you don't want to pull out too many stops because then you shake a tail feather and the nature gets mad and you might get uh unwanted scrutiny. Right. Yeah. And, and if you want to see that in action, just go to the U.S. Nationals and uh, show yes. up at 7 o'clock in the morning when stock's running, when they're trying to not only run each other in class, but qualify in 128-car field. Uh, you'll, be able, you'll get a whole lesson in 20 minutes of watching those guys. They work their butts off. 100% the best experience I ever had was I went to the U.S. Nationals a couple years ago during – I wanted to see – I wanted to cover the Hemi shootout, one of my – favorite things. And then I wanted to see the, the, the class racing, which you would think when you saw some of those guys win class that they won the whole thing, because as a sportsman racer to win class at Indy, I really don't know if there's much more of a bigger honor because that says you're basically the best of the best at what you do there. Yeah. And Indy's the Indy is where everybody meets in the middle. So up Indies at the perfect time of year because all, all year, the West Coast guys, oh, I got the fastest GTC automatic. I got the fastest B-stock automatic, blah, blah, blah. The East Coast guys say the same thing. They're running in all different conditions. Well, at Indy, the gloves come off. They're all running in the same conditions, and it could be really humbling at times. Yeah, it's, it's definitely it's, – uh, I think that Fox – for the big show broadcast should do a special edition show just covering that just to, so people can literally see like the raw emotions that go into that. And you see, you know, some older guy that's, you know, 75 years old, been racing, you know, trying to get that win. And he finally gets it there and his old lady's losing it on the starting line. I mean, it's, I've seen it happen. It, it's unreal to watch. It really, really is. Yeah. And I, I've watched it a good example of what we're speaking about. I've watched my, so my nephew, my brother's son is just starting a race and he was running stock eliminator at the Lucas Oil race at New Media this weekend. And he got through the first round, was driving great. And third round, he had a heads up. It was like 90 degrees out. And the amount of work my brother put in for that heads up run, it, I mean, it is just, it, it's intense. And, and he lost, the other guy had a quicker car, no matter what they did, they couldn't get within a 10th of the other car. But, um, you know, the, the amount of work that goes into it is, is hard to understand unless you really, like I said, go to Indy 7 o'clock in the morning, watch these guys. They got chillers out. They're pouring cold gas in the, in the tank just to get every thousandth they can. And then now that you're pepping, you're prep, uh, pepping the car up, you got to worry about it hooking because it's going to be a little different animal. Now you got to tighten the front end. Now that you tighten it too much, my B-stock automatic was pretty uh, a great hooking car. but 
heads up, Ron, I tighten it too much, it spins. I don't tighten it enough, that thing's on the wheelie bars at 300 feet, and then you lose a bunch of ET there. So there's a lot of challenges. It's fun. Um, you know, to each his own. I, I like the 69 Camaro. B-Stock Automatic was, was my class. I since sold that uh, when I slowed down racing quite a bit. Um, but that was my favorite car. Now, before we move into our next set of questions, I got to hit our first sponsor up of the day, Mosier Engineering. Uh, you know, Mosier Engineering has been racing across five decades through three generations of family. They've also been supporting the sports and ranks since the beginning of their company, essentially, with their lightning fast two-day turnaround. Everything Mosier makes from axles to rear ends, suspension brakes are made right here in the USA with one goal in mind, so you can win. To learn more, check out Mosier Engineering online at MosierEngineering.com. Once again, Dragzine tested, mother approved, put their products in my own cars, beat on them, and they do well. Now. I agree. And they're, they're great products, great people, and um, they step up and sponsor a lot of the big buck bracket races as well. So uh, hats off to Mosier for keeping it going. Now, I, I was doing a little bit of digging on you, and, you know, of course, oh, the level of racing you at, you've been to the Jegs All-Star Race. I did not realize that you won two at the same event, which is pretty impressive considering that's event is, again, it's one of those deals where that's a collection of the best of the best. What is it like winning two at the same time at that event, at Joliet? Well, the All-Star Race, the Jags All-Star Race is very similar to Indy where you know, there's a lot of smack talking about who's the best coast to coast and the, the best of the best mix it up in a, in a short three-round battle. You know, it's Jimmy DeFrank, it's Justin Lamb, then you go to Division Six, Jody Lang, you'll go to Division Three and get Ricky Decker. Um, and it's, again, the gloves come off, is it's where it's all settled. So, uh, yeah, I mean, every round you're beating an all-star. So to win three of those rounds consecutively uh, and to do it in both cars that year, that was that was one of that was one of the better days for sure. And for our listeners and viewers, you know, the Jegs All Stars race is basically the best racers from every division. It used to be at Joliet, now it's at Indy. Come out and they stick them all out there to see not only which individual is the best, but which you know, which division is best. And there's a lot of money on the line. There's a lot of pride on the line because they throw extra money on. If you can win the Jegs All-Star race and then win the event, they just throw even more money on top of it. So you've got a lot of racers that are money motivated, duking it out. It, it's pretty wild. It is. It's intense. It's wild. The coverage is great. What Jegs does with NHRA, them two together, uh, really put on a great show. I mean, they introduce you in the morning, you walk out of a, a stage, uh, Alan Reinhardt's introducing each and every one of them. You have, it's that team feeling you have with your division one guys, um, you know, throughout the classes, because for your listeners, division one would have stock, super stock, super comp, super gas, and so on. And you guys are all on one team. So not only are you, are you battling it out for an individual title, but also for a team title. And uh, it's just a great vibe. Uh, hats off to Jags for keeping that going all these years. What was it like the first time that you realized you were going to a Jegs All-Star? Was that something you had on your big board of stuff you wanted to do? You know, what, what was that moment like? Well, I wasn't really, uh, I'm more of a person that 
the way I compartmentalize things, it's more about winning the rounds, round by round. I uh, I never really, everything to me was like a blur. It was just, we were, we were racking up wins. We were going to all-star races. We were winning U.S. nationals and some championships. But And don't take this the wrong way, but everything just seemed like it was happening so fast. And my eyes always were in front of me and not behind me at what I did. So if I won a race or if I won the all-star race, um, it was all right. I just got to go to the next one and do my best again. And uh, I know that sounds kind of cliche, but to answer your question, um, did, I always felt like I'd get to a Jags all-star race. I watched my brother win one earlier before I got into one and how much fun it was. And uh, yeah, it was definitely a goal of mine. Uh, but the ultimate goal is obviously to win the world championship. You, you know, it's interesting you put it that way. And it's, it's funny to hear different racers talk about the, you know, experiences and whatnot. And the, you know, where you're at, what you've done with things. Is it the kind of moment where, again, you don't realize what's happening in the moment because you're just, you're so focused on what's going on. Do you, do you look back on it now? You're like, Oh, that was pretty awesome because you just, you didn't have time to really drink it all in it when you're doing it. Right. Yeah. That's, to everybody. I'm sure that, that's uh, a, a true statement to an extent. Uh, I can tell you firsthand for me, that's absolutely true. For, for some reason, I never really, I never really, uh, and maybe it's my personality, but I never really um, celebrated the victories. And then all of a sudden you're like, holy moly, I didn't even realize I had them. And don't take that the wrong way, but it just went really quick. Uh, the way my mind was working was just on to the next, on to the next. Uh, th this weekend, we went to New Media. Um, I won the um, top dragster yesterday at uh, the Lucas Oil race. And I looked on Drag Race Central and it said it was my 60th divisional uh, win. And I had no idea. It's like, wow, man, like, A, I'm getting old. <laughs> uh, and B, uh, I, you know, I didn't really... The older you get, the more you realize how much they mean. But when I was younger, they didn't mean as much. I was just racking them up. And now I look back, I'm like, 60, man. That's some, you know, some of my friends would die to win five. And I don't take that the wrong way, but I'm just calling a spade a spade. What I, when I saw that on Drag Race Central late last night, I, uh, I was taken back a little bit. And I think that honestly plays into different racers and how they look at things and personalities that when you're, well, you know, it's like almost like you're a high school wrestler, a college wrestler, you're in the grind. And as a racer, you get racers that are grinders. It's, you know, you just, you're, you're hammering it. It's what you want to do. And, you know, the, the trophy, the big check, it's like, all right, cool. I need my fix again. I need to go at it again. That That's what you're focused on, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, every everybody approaches racing differently and everyone approaches each round, each race differently. Um, that's just the way I did it. I was either all in or not in at all. Um, so, I, so I would chase championships and because I was all in, it would wear me out mentally, physically, everything. And then I would take a step back and maybe not race for four years. Uh, and then I get hungry again. And I'm like, man, I want that taste again. And then I go after it again. And maybe I win, maybe I not. But I would, I would take a lot of breaks because to me, with all we had going on, uh, and everyone has a lot going on, but I, our our whole life is around drag racing. When I go to the track on the weekends, 
it, it was always all of our customers that we sold products to. So there was, my mind never ha- got a chance to really have an off switch. So uh, to me, I have I had to step back for a while and starting in 2014 is when I started uh, really stepping back. I, I started a family with my beautiful wife, Emily, and, uh, you know, priorities changed. And speaking of the priorities, you know, the Fling Series events that you're a part of honestly turned into a monster for all the right reasons and what's it been like growing a series of races like that into what they are now you know starting out i'm sure you didn't think you know you wanted the the plan wasn't for it to turn it out like this you know what's that been like the whole the whole growth process well there really wasn't a plan it was just (laughs) it was it was two guys kyle seipel and myself uh who were looking at a schedule. We were on a family vacation, January, 2010. And we were in Lake Tahoe with our wives and we were trying to draw out a schedule. We said, we got you, you're from the West Coast, I'm from the East Coast, but we want to race together a little bit more because I never did better racing with anybody else than racing with Kyle because he, he just knew what buttons to push with me and he just had a great vibe to be around uh, for confidence. So we're trying to put a schedule together. And at that time, the Moroso five-day, uh, you might be a little young for that, but do you remember the Moroso five-day race? Oh, yeah. I remember reading about that in Superstock Magazine growing up. Yeah. You're probably about 12. Um, but um, the Moroso five-day um, was the big deal. And it wasn't a big deal anymore because track sold and, and it just kind of went, went uh, a little flat. So we were trying to put the schedule together and, we really couldn't find a race that we were excited to go about to go to, excuse me. So uh, we decided, we said, you know what, why don't we just put one on? And that's really, there wasn't a lot of conversations before then. It was then we both, well, he's not a pen and paper guy. I am. He, he's, an, he's more of an idea guy. And we just started shooting down, shooting down ideas on a, on a, uh, I think it was about 10 sheets of paper and we got home and we said, we're going to try this. And the only the crazy part was we only had three months to promote it. Um, new brand, new event, obviously first time at loca- the location, Bristol. And um, looking back on it, it was crazy. We guaranteed a lot of money, um, but we didn't know where it was going to go. You know, 11 years later, it grew, grew to be a, a great, great brand. And uh, I couldn't be more proud to, uh, to have it, to be part of it, and to have a team around me that's that's just like family. Is this something when you approach the race too, that did you guys look at as, you know, it, from a, did you build it from a racer standpoint? Like the dream kind of thing, man, if I was going to do a race, I would want this and that to make it more racer friendly? Yeah, and, and that's the, the secret sauce, so to speak. And that's why there's a lot of other people now that, the racers putting on races because the racers the racers know what the racers want but you also have to look at it from an operational standpoint and mix the two together um at first we didn't have the operational side luckily the first year not that many people showed up because if, if 400 people would have showed up we would have been overwhelmed and it probably would have been a, a a blank show let's just put it that way um but it um Yes, a racer putting on a race definitely has its advantages. Um, Kyle and myself with a perfect one-two punch, 
without a doubt, as far as the partnership goes, the yin and yang, whatever you want to call it. He was a dreamer. I was more the operations guy. And we always met with our ideas right in the middle and, and came up with things. But yeah, thinking that you have to think about it from a racy perspective. You know, every time I wake up in the morning, I say, what does it feel like to be a racer? Coming over, like, what can we do right now on the cuff? Like we have everything planned out, but what can we do right now while it's downtime to engage the racers because they're sitting there twiddling in the thumbs right now and I don't like the vibe. So, you know, maybe we call people up to the tower. We've had kids in front of the tower during rain delays where we give away prizes and Kyle would do, and I would do all kinds of, uh, you know, contests and give toys out. It's, it's, uh, it's like any other business. It's, it's a lot of hard work, but if you truly believe in it, it's a lot of fun. And if you truly, if you're truly passionate about it, it, doesn't feel doesn't feel like work it's funny you mentioned the giveaways because I, I was going to try to figure out a way to work this in is there anything in particular that sticks out in your mind a crazy contest a crazy prize because you give you give stuff away for anything and everything is there anything that you I, you came up with the idea and said what could we do that was kind of wild this time you know how can we make this you know different you know is there anything that sticks out yeah and it's very recent um, so we have a, um, at our million race, we have a deal where the time run for the million, you pay $50. Um, the best package wins a set of Brodix heads worth five grand. Second best package wins two grand, et cetera, et cetera. So there's some good prizes for the $50 value that you get. Um, but there's more, uh, if you run a perfect run, you get $50,000 on a spot. Uh, now everyone says, well, how many perfect runs are done during, uh, happen during the year, blah, 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 blah. But eighth mile bracket racing, shorter track, these days with the equipment and the big X factor is these guys have nothing to lose. It's a time run. They're taking a shot. You know, if it was me, I'd be set up 003 red to 003 green and just hope it falls right in the middle because you have nothing to lose. And it's not that hard to go dead on these days. So uh, anyway, yes, Steve Withrow went dead on with a zero at a perfect light in uh, last year at our million and we handed him $50,000. Um, that was, uh, no, we didn't have any insurance, which is crazy. I still don't know if I can get anyone to insure that because it's, uh, you know, how do you explain to an insurance company the odds? Uh, but it happened and uh, yeah, that was probably the craziest, uh, where do you go, four, 62 on a 462, 4.6 seconds uh, of holding my breath. Uh, you know, did we want someone to hit it eventually? Yeah, we did. Um, it's a great promotion and they're paying $50. It should be going to that pot. But uh, I tell you the last couple of years, I'm second guessing that because it's in Vegas this year, it was like triple zero, 1,000 under, 001 dead on with a zero. Is I said, I told Kyle, I said, we might want to rethink, we might want to get insurance for this. <laughs> that yeah again it, it's one of those things where it, it, it draws the racer in but as a promoter you're, yeah you're, you're thinking man it seemed like a good idea at the time but it, it's like a carnival game it's like man these guys are getting good at this we gotta we gotta throw another wrinkle at this or something i don't know yeah well you know when we first came out with it people uh kyle and i would have talks with some people that we knew and they'd be and we try to figure out how many times it would be hit i thought it would be hit once every three years um with that we'd probably break even 
and it's great promotion. And it's great fun because the time runs are boring. You know, time runs are just flat out boring. Uh, it's great for the racer to get uh, to get that hit on a tree, but even for them, time runs these days. You know, four hour time run session is is uh, is not the excitement there is when you put something like fifty grand and Brody set a heads up up for a prize. So uh, yeah, we thought it would hit one every three years. It looks like it's probably a little off on that and i'm going to be looking for insurance if you know anybody moving forward <laughs> well before we move forward into our our last section of the show i got to thank our sponsor uh, fast and we're going to talk about the fast lsxhr 103 millimeter intake manifold it's the industry's first polymer tunnel ram intake designed to handle boost on your cathedral ported ls ls3 or ls7 build Unlike cast or fabricated intake manifolds, the LSXHR has no issues with heat soak and reduces weight by up to seven pounds. With continuous pressure rating up to 45 PSI for boost applications, optimized injected angles, and interchangeable velocity stacks, the fast LSXHR is the perfect intake manifold for all turbocharged, supercharged, or even naturally aspirated LS engines. Get more info at fast fuelairsparktechnology.com. Great product there that I'm definitely looking at as well because we're making my streetcar boosted car. And we were talking about this weekend with my friend that helped me with the car streetcar takeover. You see other people's stuff like that. It's like, I'm gonna have to switch that at some point. You, you, you always find a ways to spend money, right? Yeah, with technology these days, uh, that company is right in the thick of the future. Sure. Yeah, and, and it's funny, you know, going to an event like the streetcar takeover as a, as a racer, as a media person, as a fan, that's an awesome event because it just shows the diversity of drag racing where, you know, a month ago I was at NHRA national event and now I'm at the streetcar event where there's guys showing up with street legal modified, you know, a, a Corvette C6 Corvette busting 155 miles an hour during a roll race. It's, it's impressive to watch. It's cool to see that, that the young guys are still in the hobby at that level. Yeah, it's always good to see fresh new ideas and fresh new people. And I think uh, some of the stuff NHRA is doing and some of the stuff that the, the companies are doing, introducing new technology to go along with it, I think is going to help out the future of our sport. I hope so. Speaking of the future of the sport, you know, where do you see bracket racing going in general? You know, we got all these big events, you know, you got local level racing, you know, where you get you have an interesting perspective on this and i want to hear where you think it's going to go well you know you you talk to people in the pits and you talk to guys at all you know i was talking to don balducci an older gentleman last week at echo talk to some of the young kids and you hear all different stuff from people thinking it's dying it's it's going to be dead in five years there's no new blood and blah 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 but there's something about the smoke, the the uh, the rush, the being in control—you're basically gambling on yourself, and you're having a boatload of fun at high speeds on top of it, with a chance to win big money or big trophy, you know, wallies, etc. It's not going anywhere. It, it's going to be fine. Um, I've watched it go in some cycles. As far as the the uh, big buck bracket racing goes, right now we are in a it's a correction that needed to happen. Um, I'm glad it's happening, although it's, you know, the car counts even for our rents are probably gonna be a little lower this year than normal, but there's only so much money people can spend. And 
the influx of racers putting on racers races and the the amount of entry fees and half some of them are double entered um a lot of them are double entered at some of the events it's it's astronomical it it it's not it's not the uh, it it cannot hold so we knew there was a correction coming uh when nobody really knew but last year you know there was a bunch of guaranteed millions there was our million there was brandy pope's million a uh, ton of 10 and 20 and 50 and 100,000 dollar races money's going to run out and and this year it's shown it did the car counts are lower uh it's just like anything else any other market it's a correction the strong will survive the weak will not and eventually it will go back up to uh to where uh it was two years ago or last year for that matter. But I don't I don't see it going anywhere. I think it's cyclical, cyclical like any other business. I don't think there's any other sport that, I mean, wait, you, can you hit a, uh, a golf ball with Tiger Woods hitting in front of you? No, but can you go down a drag strip with John Force or Scotty Richardson? Yes, uh, it's it's unique and uh, it's, uh, it's an addiction and it's here to stay. I think with bracket racing, you know, I think the, the market correction is a great way to put it, that the big money races and, you know, Andrew Wolf and I, the editor of Dragzine, have talked about this. We're like, man, at some point, this is going to have to cool off because there's just, you can't starve the feeder system, which the feeder system is your local level mom and pop tracks. You can't starve them out with, you know, guys thinking that they can go win a $100,000 race, they're going to say, well, I'll just, I'll go to that. I won't go to my local level race. Well, you're cutting off the food supply for the sport entirely, which is not a good idea. And like you said, the, 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 the market will correct itself. And I, I'm hoping, I think we're going to see more of a boom at local level racing, especially what you're seeing at, you know, at Virginia Motorsports Park with what they're doing. They're getting great car counts. Uh, I know I've heard, you know, but Norwalk, they're getting like 500 cars for a points race. You know, I think we need to see more of the local level stuff kind of springing back up to keep the, the health of the sport where it needs to be. Absolutely. You hit the nail right on the head. The two years ago, I'd say from five years ago until about last year, the big buck bracket racing was taken taken from the local sport. I mean, I mean, from the local track. So people have had it two ways. It was helping the sport because it was keep people interested and keep people building race cars. But then again, these race races aren't joining the local points and not showing up the local tracks because they have so many big money races to choose from and it's more exciting for them. But now that there's so many of them, I think the pop of going to a big money race isn't what it used to be five years ago because it's kind of, you know, you look on Motormania TV, there's a big, there's two, three big money races each weekend. So guys are starting to say, you know what, I can just have fun going to my local track. And we're starting to see that a lot more. And I'm glad because the local tracks are, uh, like you said, they need to stay in business. With that said, Brian, the, the, the one thing that does scare me is with inflation going up over the years, with land prices going up over the years, these local tracks, unless you're doing a lot of the shows and maybe an NHRA national event or an import race, it's hard to, you know, take ACO for instance. You know, I don't want to get into their numbers, but they're right. They're right on the line of where English Town was, and I don't blame English Town for closing. Uh, they that Knapp family stuck with it 
for a long time. It pissed a lot of people off when they closed, but at some point, how can you blame them? I mean, they 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 stuck with it probably ten years longer than most families would have. They they had a, they if you, like my father said, and don't take this the wrong way. I love racers, but you know, the uh, they had fifty Super Pro races a week, and sometimes eight of them were in a tower would be complaining, and they're not making much money, and they, you know, it's a family business. It's tough. The inflation, the land value, at some point something's got to give. And Ackles kind of in that, I hate to say it, but it's kind of right there with that. It's worth a lot of money to somebody who wants to store cars there, but it's doesn't make even close to that return operating a drag strip. So you got to find someone that has a lot of passion that sticks with it. And uh, it's hard to find. Oh, Peter, I am so happy you opened that can of worms. I have been thinking about this, but, you know, driving back and forth to some of these events and people do not understand that drag strips do not, they're not these fountains of money that people think they are. They don't understand. Talk to a track owner and they will tell you that if you want to get rich, this is not how you do it. You can maybe get wealthy-ish but you look at it you know you're a businessman you look at it from a business standpoint you're killing yourself just trying to barely make money it's a seasonal sport you got people in your face complaining all the time bashing you online well then this business comes and says hey i'm gonna give you this huge pile of cash that you could probably retire on and not have to worry about this anymore what are you gonna do from a business standpoint, I could tell you exactly what I would do unless you're a diehard, like you say, you do it for the passion. I'm taking the money and I might go open another business that doesn't make me go insane is dependent on the weather. People don't understand that drag strips are not a forever thing. That as cities expand, you know, look at what just happened at Houston. They lost that lease because the company that they were leasing it from, they said, well, I can make a whole lot more money right here that's guaranteed money. What are you going to do as a business person, you know? You got you got the Amazons needing space. You got these car uh, auction and storage companies needing space. Um, and, you know, look at the raw numbers. Uh, a super pro race, and I'm listen, it's not all about the money. I get it. But you have to talk about the elephant in the room because, again, Echo's worth 2x to this company, but running it as a, a, a drag strip, it's worth uh, half X. Um, so it's, you know, I don't know, man, that's, that's the scary part to me. Cause if those, if that, if that part goes away, we could have a problem. It, it, it's funny when, uh, when I was buying my house, my dad gave me some advice, our, our second house, we were kind of him hauling about this house, the property we bought. It had a lot of things I want. He said, remember one thing. You can always build more houses, but you can't build more land. Buy something that's got land. Land has more value. And that's exactly what you're seeing with a lot of tracks, unfortunately, is that the land has more value where they're at. And people will go build another track. Y'all know how much it costs to build, a, just to open a track, let alone maintain it, everything else. It is not as easy what you think. And I think personally, from a racer standpoint, we need to be a lot more, we, we need to be more thankful and stop bashing a track because, oh, well, 
The Coke at the at the concession stand just wasn't cold enough. This place is junk. Don't go there. Well, guess what? Other people are going to read that, and the online mob starts, and you build problems, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, somewhere along the line, there's some entitlement there, I guess. And, you know, it's – when I go to a race, and this is even before a promote, being a promoter, I wasn't somebody to go to the tower to complain. I mean, unless it was crazy, something crazy happened. Uh, but, you know, it's, it, it's, you got to go to the races that you trust the people who are running it. It's their show. And you're the customer 100%, but you have to trust that they're looking out for you, even in some of the decisions where it does, it may not look like that at that time. And it's, uh, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, the local tracks, I always, I always tell people support your local tracks. I mean, I love everyone to come to the flings, but I, you know, I, I'm close with the Domino family. They have decent car counts. You know, they make some money with the concession stand, but for the amount of work they put in, you got to show up and be appreciative because they're going to close down if not. And I'm, that's just, uh, you know, I'm not trying to threaten everybody, but, and, and they're not, then the media is not closing down because they're a family run business that, does it at a true passion. Uh, but at tracks like, well, there's other tracks that we're seeing that are closing down. And Ackles on the fence right now is talking to Len Capone last week. And, uh, you know, he's in a tough spot. Uh, and any business can wear you out after a while. You know, I was in the business of Beyond the Racing Products with my brother and my father started it and a lot of sentiment, sentimental value there. Uh, but after 25 years, I just had to back out. It just wore me out. I love it, but there's a time and place where your health is more, there's a time when a business just isn't for you anymore. And I still help my brother out. He's the, the main man. He's got some really good help uh, with Richard DiLorenzo and, and my brother-in-law, Richie. And still have a lot of good contracts, the digital delay and all those companies that we deal with, Sparkle, et cetera. But that business, that's that's very similar. It's a business that inflation's going up. You're working on set margins, and you have to, you know, you sell a you sell a trans brake button or a delay box. It's going to be in that car for 20 years. They're your customer for 20 years in one sale. Don't get me wrong. I love what my father started, but it wears you out. And when Kyle, I don't know if some of your um, audience knows this, but my partner, my best friend business partner, Kyle Seipel, who recently passed away with cancer. Um, we had some talks when he was on his deathbed and I asked him what he wanted me to do moving forward. What was his wish? He said, I want you to keep it going. I want you to keep it on top, keep it going. And I said, I promise you I will, but there's a chance I might get worn out someday. Because whenever you go all in with something, you get it's easy to get worn out. But I guess the bottom line in all of this is you do have to support your local races. And before you go up to the tower at your local track to say that the porta pot is full, just take a breath and say, you know, maybe they got a really lot going on right now. Um, but, and, and pick the tracks that you know are going to do the right thing. I mean, there's uh, new media is a great track. Uh, Bader at Norwalk, you won't find somebody with more passion than him. I've never met him personally, but I, I watch it from afar. Amazing. And it shows, shows it in his car counts. Uh, but that's what we're missing. We need more baiters. We need more new medias. We need more 
Mino families, people that do it for a passion and not just uh, bean counters that are looking at the bottom line and don't and have that big disconnect to the races. And to swing things in a little bit of a different direction and, and looking at, you know, again, I, I like being in the position I'm in because I get to kind of like be a fly on the wall and look at a bigger picture. And there's something that I noticed at a lot of events this year. I, I'm seeing younger people in cars, even at the NHRA race, you know, you see a lot of older gentlemen in, you know, your stock and super stock classes, which is expected. But inside those super comp dragsters, I saw a good amount of younger people. I saw a lot of women racing. And it's, you, it's good to see even at the local events, younger people still getting into it and the different forms of racing, you know, no prep racing, some of the heads up stuff. It's a younger crowd that continues to feed the sport. And I think that we need, as racers, as promoters, as media people, we need to embrace all forms of drag racing, period. End of discussion. And yes, 100%. And the beauty of drag racing is a 17-year-old could be running up against an 84-year-old and it's even money. You know, it's uh, like Ted Seifel, 84 years old. He was one round away from going to the final at the national event last week. Uh, uh, yesterday, I should say. Uh, and I love at our fling events watching the whole the whole range. 17-year-old young guy, you can, you can just tell by the way he stages, he's aggressive, he's bowed up in the seat. Then you got uh, a guy like Bill Dempsey, an older guy who just laid back, has a laid back seat. And, you know, you could, <laughs> you could flip a corner who's going to win that race. And I think that's one thing we really have going for us is that 17-year-old and 85-year-old it's a huge spread. It's not like you have a short window in any other sport. And yeah. the junior dragsters. The junior, the junior dragsters, uh, that's Vinny Knapp, the late Vinny Knapp came up with that. Best thing that could happen to our sport. Because you go to, I think, Bristol just a few weeks ago at the Eastern Conference Final. They might have had six, 700 there. Everyone thinks the sport's dying. It's not dying. Just look at all those juniors. And, and that is something uh, I want to, you know, I have bucket lists of things to do. I love teaching drag racing. I did it with Luke Bagaki once. I had a blast. Um, I don't have enough time to go all in and do it again right now, but one day I, I'm gonna do one here and there, but I really wanna put on a junior drag racing school because I love teaching kids, watching those kids, the, the simple minds that they have um, and ha being a part of that would be really cool. Oh, totally. It's, it's awesome to see Again, some of the younger demographics, younger crowd getting into it. They like said, I'm no prep racing to me is something that, you know, at first I thought was the dumbest thing on earth. And I went to an event and I got it. And right now, that's one of the biggest, actually, no, I'll take that back. That is the biggest grassroots heads up form of racing right now. They just had a $100,000 to win reverse race down at uh, Rockingham that was packed out you know, because the, the surface is the equalizer, you know, you had Bill Lutz, a local guy showed up, you know, with his nasty screw blown hemi, went out in the second round, you know, it happens. He had all the horsepower, didn't win. And it's what people don't realize is that you don't knock those guys because at some point they might say, you know what, 
this heads up stuff's too expensive, but I want to keep racing. What's going on? Oh, what's this bracket racing stuff all about? Well, guess what? They just, they're going to keep paying entry for the monies and keeps track open. That's why you can't knock people. And that's what bothers me when I see guys bash bracket racing, because guess what? Bracket racers are the backbone of drag racing. End of discussion. Yeah, and I agree, uh, but it need we need all of it because that's how the tracks are going to stay alive, and that's how the sports going to stay alive. Totally. We need the heads up stuff. Heads up stuff brings the fans. It's a different dynamic. It's really cool. I went to one of the pink soul outs for my soccer back in the day, and you know, it was just cool. We we need it all. We need it all to keep going. We need it all to just keep going that way. And uh, yeah, it's going to be cyclical, but. Uh, I feel confident it's going to be all right. Everything in drag racing has a place and heads up racers put the butts in the seats, but the bracket racers help feed the purse bracket racers help with at some of the big events I'm at when the heads up guys are turning cars around the bracket racers are out there keeping the show going. You check that out. You know, it's, that is more of the, uh, the, how that's the gateway drug to the sport. And I think that that's something that people need to understand that, you know, you rarely these days don't see guys just jump into a pro mod. They all have to start somewhere and guess where they start behind the wheel of a bracket car. That's it. 16 second grocery getter wagon was where my brother and I started. And, um, you know, you just work your way up. Look at Langdon, Junior Dragster, Eric Anders. You want to see someone that can drive the wheels off anything. Oh, she's amazing. Vicious. And, and for, for any of you, especially younger listeners or, or listeners who have sons and daughters who are 10 years oldish, watch that movie. Uh, I watched it with my son and daughter and my wife, uh, Eric and his Disney. There's a Disney movie uh, on Disney Channel. Eric Anders, uh, I cannot think of the name, but it's a really cool movie about her and his sister and how they grew up junior dragster racing. Well, Peter, I always like to throw my guests a fun question because of the mystical powers I hear have on the show. Either it's a time machine that I give a question like that because I got a cool drag racing time machine. I have an unlimited bank account for you. I am going to make you now the Lord Emperor of drag racing. It all flows to you, my friend. You get to do three things to make drag racing the number one motorsport in the world kick the Formula One guys to the curb, NASCAR what? No, drag racing is going to be number one based on these three things that you're about to do. What three things would you do to make drag racing number one? Well, the first thing I would do is what Luke Bagaki is doing right now, which is really cool. He's basically putting up a championship pot that you race at your local track. And it's a it's a old, it's a nationwide point system, but you race at your local track, and the winner wins. I forget what it is, but it's a lot of money. So he's 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 already doing that part. That's one. He's keeping he's he's mixing the the feel of a national title, so to speak, uh, with big money bracket racing. But he's doing it spreading across local tracks, and I think most local tracks are involved. So that that's the first thing I would do. Um, the second thing I would do is have probably three big junior drags to drag racing schools a year, and maybe even maybe even um, a 
drag junior drag racing events to follow that um, because that's the future of our sport. And if we can, if, if, if seven year old, I can convince him that what's fun about it, what's challenging about it. And he can tell three friends and he can tell three friends and you can see how for 10 grand, you can go down the same strip uh, John Forrest did. I think that's pretty cool. Um, so that's the second thing I would do. Uh, the third thing I would do is um, I would get a guy like Bill Bader, partner up with him, partner up with uh, a guy like, um, well, the late Kyle Seifel, um, obviously, but so someone that has, uh, that has Kyle's vision and people person uh, and us and us three together, I think, can uh, can change things. I think that's three solid things. It would definitely make a, a big difference. And, you know, I appreciate you coming on the show. And it's this point of the show where I let my guests kind of take the floor, channel the inner John Force, and you can thank who you need to thank, tell people where they can learn more about what you got going on. So, Peter, the floor is yours, my friend. Plug what you got to plug. Appreciate that. Um, well, we, my passion right now is our fling series of events. We have four events. We have a uh, spring fling in like a lot. We have the spring fling in Vegas. Now we have the summer fling in Columbus and the fall fling at Bristol. If you've never had an opportunity to come to one of our events, I would suggest talk to somebody who has been there. Um, word of mouth is our best friend and, uh, we have a lot of fun. So that that's basically what my wife and I are in 24 seven right now is where our mind's at. Um, just trying to, without Kyle, my partner, it's, uh, it's going to be really difficult because I don't have that one to bounce my crazy ideas off and I don't have someone bouncing crazy ideas off of me. Uh, so uh, there's a little more pressure there, but we surrounded ourselves through Kyle, the friends I've met through him, we surrounded ourselves with a great team. Um, I will share a short story on how the circle of life works. So yesterday, um, well, let me back backdrop, uh, step back a minute. So Kyle was getting sick. Um, anyone who doesn't know Kyle, he had cancer, fought it. They told him three to three to twelve months, two and a half years ago, and he just passed away. Uh, just couldn't fight it anymore. It's a nasty disease and was very, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but it was, it was very um, humbling watching a guy with that much energy go down the last two weeks on his deathbed. Um, so with that said, we knew it was coming about six months ago. I, we talked about it and the way the circle of life is, he hooks us up. He, I've become really good friends with Marco Paravalaris, a uh, West Coast hitter and his sister, Lella. Lella just graduates from marketing. She knows a lot about racing. We put her on full-time. Marco Paravalaris has been helping us. Those two have been a great addition. And if I didn't know Kyle, there's, there's, there's no way that that happens. It's a, it's a connection. And so yesterday, um, Marco's in, uh, has a lot of pressure on him. He's at the national event where they're honoring Kyle, the Grand Marshals, Kyle's father and mother uh, in Sonoma. Marco wants to win this race and he's a talented driver, but I could feel the pressure he's feeling to win it with all that going on. And um, 
He texts me and says he's triple he's triple zeros last time run and says I'm going to add four thousands to his box. Super comp. And I said, it's early, dude. Add five or six. He goes, I'll give you five. So he adds five. He goes triple zero first round. So I saved him from a red light. So I'm taking a little bit of credit there. But my, the moral of my story is he ripped the tree after that. Him and his sister deserve all the credit for, for the win. But if, if, I don't, if I don't have that connection with Kyle, maybe he doesn't win that race yesterday. And that race meant more to him because he won it for his mother who passed away recently. He won it for Kyle. So it's just funny how life works out. Yeah, totally. It's it's interesting. Sometimes you you don't realize the stars are aligning until you have a moment like that. They they always seem to do. They they really do. And I and I know that's not a plug. It's more of a story. But I think it it uh it paints the whole picture of um of how life really things are meant to be and things happen for a reason. Oh, that's what man. That's what the show's all about. Stories talking about racing, you know, getting that stuff out there that people, you know, how many other people would have known about, you know, you telling them how much you put in the box, unless you told that story right here. Now, you know, there's going to be thousands of people that, that get to hear that. Yeah. And, and one more funny story about Kyle. So we're, we're at a fling event and there's a guy on the starting line that didn't have his run sticker. They're only getting one time run, didn't have his run sticker. So we shut him off because you know, thinking you didn't pay for your tech card. Well, maybe he lost his run, so whatever. Push him to the side. He comes up to the tower like, oh, you know, you guys just have it out for me and blah, 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 blah. So Kyle, the people person that he is, walks him out. By the time he leaves, they're hugging and shaking hands. All right, go go get your run sticker. We're going to let you make your run. Um, comes back up to the tower and goes, uh, I said, oh, you, you smooth that one out. And he was, he was just a great people person that came from a great place, so it was natural to him. But he says, yeah, he goes, he's real happy. I said, he is? Why is that? He goes, well, he's making another run, A. And B, I told him if he goes triple zero, we'll just give him 500 bucks. I said, really? He goes, dude, it's his first run. What's the chance of him going triple zero? It was just, you know, I just, I wanted to just, you know, throw something at him because he looked like he was having a hard day. He goes triple zero, we hand him 500 bucks. Uh, but that wasn't on a fly or anything. That's just something that Kyle did, and he was a people person. But those are some of the stories, and I have probably 500 of them like that, that, um, you know, ton of memories and a ton of funny stories that we could talk for four hours about it. But uh, definitely not going to do that. Not now, anyway. Not enough time of the day, right? Not enough time of the day to tell Kyle Seipel stories. Uh but for you guys that didn't know him, he was a legendary racer, uh, touched more lives than probably any drag racer that I know. Uh, he's helped a lot of people, and he'll be truly missed. Great way to really put that, Peter. And is there anything else you need to plug or anything like that? Or is, is that pretty much where you want to leave that leg? I think we're good. Awesome. Well, I, I got to thank our sponsor, you know, Performance Distributors, Airflow Research, Procharger, Holly, MSD, Flowmaster, Comp Cams, Elderbrock, Fuel Air Spark Technology, Manly, JE Pistons, and Dart. It was awesome having you on the show. I'm looking forward. I'm going to make it out to trails to stop and say hi and uh, check out this, uh, this fling madness. And then hopefully at some point I can get one of my uh, jalopies together and come out and uh, make a donation to the pot because Lord knows I'll go out there and get my head stomped in. But I'll get my head stomped in having a good time, it sounds like. 
yeah, you know, win, win or lose, you know, there's, there's going to be so many more losers than there are winners. So I promise you, that between the prizes and the uh, the energy and the vibe that the fling has, uh, you, you'll have a good time win or lose. You know, I heard someone say this over the PA at the streetcar takeover event this weekend, the announcer, how can you have a bad day at the drag strip? And I got to thinking, I'm like, you know what? That man's onto something there. Absolutely. And, and that's why uh, the sport's going to stay alive for a long time. Thanks again for Peter joining us. Look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, Brian.